shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, it's Friday, everybody. So what does Friday tell us? It's time to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Zebalero. I got to tell you. What a really great week that we had, and it just keeps inching closer and closer to the summertime. I know what you're thinking. Spring hasn't even gotten here, but we're talking about summer. And the best person to talk about summer with is our summerhood buddy, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? I'm fine, man. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, working on my summer tan now, getting it, you know, I want to be golden brown by the time I get to show off my bikini body. That's right. That's going to be awesome to see. And don't forget, we have a <laughs> yeah. little bit of a uh, wager goes on for Kilted to Kick Cancer. So uh, I That's want you right. to be nice and golden brown. Golden That's brown. That's right. <laughs> so um, how was your week? Everything's going good for you? It's it's busy, man. It's it's busy. I've got a uh, I've got a new EMT class coming up, and something I've never done before, and, and uh, a hybrid, uh, uh, and uh, having to build the materials for that and set everything up. And I'm going to be doing the class alternating between uh, alternating every week uh, between two different sites. I'll be live at one site and uh, and broadcasting via the internet to the other site, and um, it's a lot of work getting this done you know it's a little bit outside my wheelhouse but i'm ready to embrace the challenge and uh and get on into the 21st century with uh with my education ladies and gentlemen (laughs) what you have here is one of the premier educators in the united i'm going to say it kelly grayson one of the premier educators in the united states whining about having to teach a class did you hear that did everybody notice that if it, if it slipped by, I wanted to be able to point it out. But let's go ahead and set the show up. So we're going to do a, a quick news story a piece. And last week we did the story about ultrasound, and we kind of dedicated the show to ultrasound. And there was a lot of talk on Facebook about the use of ultrasound. And, and I'm coming from the side where I don't think it has a place in EMS. So in the course of uh, going back and forth about uh, ultrasound, so Dom Wallenzak is going to come and join us in a little bit, take a seat at the guest table, and he is going to try to convince me that ultrasound is going to be needed in the field. But before we do that, Kelly Grayson is going to kick off some news. Kelly, what do you got? Chris, we've got a uh, your feel-good story of the week. World War II veteran visits a, uh, a uh, World War II museum uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and found the ambulance that he drove in Germany 71 years ago. Uh, how crazy I is saw that? this this is just as cool as cool gets and you know i'm a history buff uh and and this guy was driving an ambulance in germany um uh in uh, enlisted right after high school in 1943 uh he didn't know how to drive at the time <laughs> like, like most of the people in ems <laughs> exactly uh so you know he's 18 17 18 year old kid uh sent off to war uh and they they draft uh put him to work as an ambulance driver and now at age 91 uh he goes to visit the new mexico museum of military history uh and saw his ambulance recognized the serial numbers on the bumper, a restored World War II era uh, truck ambulance. Uh, and I just think, man, that is just as cool as can be. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, you know, we talk about, you know, being a small world, and of course, social media has made it even smaller. But now you got a guy 71 years ago that uh, is doing his job in the war, 
And, you know, just on the whim, he shows up at this museum and he sees his old rod. I mean, how cool is that? It doesn't get any cooler than that, man, you know? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm constantly amazed by, by how small the Internet makes the world. Uh, I, I can't tell you the number of times we've, I've uh, encountered people uh, in my travels and, and in my talks with, with folks and that we, we had common acquaintances and uh, we'd been some of the same places and, and actually, uh, you know, run some of the same calls with the same people. But uh, I think it is just awesomely cool. Uh, how he finds his stuff. I, I remember my dad took me to a uh, to a museum um, many years ago when I was a kid, a, a flight museum, and uh, one of the displays was an old Piper Cub that he had learned to fly in, that wow. particular wow. Piper Cub. Uh, as it turns out, one of his basic flight instructors was the, uh, the guy who found Smokey the Bear. <laughs> um, and I got to hear that story, and those kind of things have fascinated me ever since. You know, right. going back and 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 uh, going back in time and, and reconnecting, and and I'm, it's glad that uh, Mr. Grasser found the uh, found his old ambulance. I bet it was a blast from the past for him, and uh, mm-hmm. it's just a, a great way to start the week. It really is. And let me go ahead and give you my story. I kind of saw it uh, on the national news first, but it's on EMS One. If you go to March twenty fifth. And, you know, this was another kind of feel-good story for me. And there was a video of a five-year-old girl who saved her mom who was having a seizure in the pool. And the, the daughter, her daughter Allison, was out off uh, playing, and she noticed that her mother was face down in the pool having a seizure. And she got in the water. She pulled her mother over to the, to the steps. She turned her over to make sure her face wasn't in the water. And then she went and called 911. And this really comes from the, the side of her just being taught CPR in school. And she knew exactly what she needed to do to save her mother. And I think that one of the things that's important here is, are we starting the kids young enough to say they have the opportunity to help folks who may be in, uh, you know, in a life-threatening situation? And here it's work, Kelly. And, and I just think we got to do more of this education because I think that there could be more opportunities for, you know, kids to understand and when an emergency happens, you know, to do the right thing. You know, they're... They're little knowledge sponges at that age. They're they're constantly soaking in uh, everything that we do and say, and and often repeating the things that we don't want repeated uh, at in our opportune times. But if a child can re- repeat a, a little bit of blue language that you uh, spoke in front of her in, in mixed company, uh, and I, and I, and use it in the proper context, and use it in the proper context. That's right. Um, uh, then, then they definitely can can do something like this, and uh, you know, it just goes to show that um, no matter how young you are, uh, they're they're you know they're paying attention. You know, I remember teaching an EMT class some years back when when Katie Beth was a, a little girl. She was probably three and a half years old, and I'm trying to teach bag mass ventilation to these students, and they are just whining and oh, I can't do it. This mannequin's just uh, I can't get a good mass seal. You need more air in the in the mass cuff and and all this kind of stuff. And while they're over there whining and and complaining, we hear a, a little breathy little voice behind us go up two and three and four and five and breathe. And I look over there, and Katie Beth has got her lucky fan, her 
her uh, bad arm holding the mask seal down, and she has got the bag under the other arm, squeezing it with her elbow, right. uh, trying to ventilate this mannequin. Never showed her that before. Uh, she just thought it was cool watching everyone do it, and when, when she had the opportunity to try, she gave it a whirl. And that's, you know, you read about these things where uh, kids learn to call 911 or, or uh, in this case, uh, kept her mom from drowning. Uh, and right. Kudos to the little girl. Uh, I, mean, I think Allison, a, Allison needs a big kudos for that and, and a big show made of it because she uh, she did something very special that she'll she'll be able to hopefully tell her grandkids about the time she saved her mom's life. Now, one of the things that I would do if I was this kid mm-hmm. is I would make sure that I had no bedtime ever again. <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, you got and you got to hit it early. You got to hit it as soon as she's in yeah, the hospital. You know, now, mom, I think. Spot. We got it, right? I mean, at least yeah. you got to give it a go. But anyway. <laughs> Want to play hooky from school. Exactly. That. Come on, Mom, I need a pass that here. That you were face down in the pool. Hey, remember that time? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's going to be tough, man. It's going to be tough. But anyway, Kelly, so let's go ahead and talk about some ultrasound. I'm going to go ahead and pitch the uh, segment to you, and then I'll let you bring Dom in, and uh, we'll see what we got. For those of you who didn't uh, tune in last week, and shame on you if you didn't, uh, we were talking about whether technology uh, in EMS makes us dumber and, and we get lazy and complacent, and, and is there a need for all the the, the uh, new toys that we have out there? And, and one thing we discussed in particular was pre-hospital point-of-care ultrasound. And and Chris is somewhat of a skeptic, uh, and, and I started out skeptical but i'm i'm warming up to it uh i i think that uh the only thing that really stands in the way uh, at this point is pricing and that's coming down pretty pretty rapidly so when we posted it to uh ems one's facebook page it generated a lot of discussion and uh, predictably everyone sided with me and a bunch of people spanked chris so we've got one of them on and uh <laughs> <laughs> what a setup yeah that's, hey man you kicked it to me i get to say what i want dom wallen zach welcome to the show man Hey, Kelly. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Hey, look at that. That's our first one we ever got. How about that? But, uh, well, thanks for joining us, Dom. So, so for the folks who don't know you, Dom, why don't you go ahead and ta- uh, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, so the listeners can get acquainted with you. Well, I'm a paramedic from the uh, Buffalo, New York area. I'm uh, currently practicing uh, as a ground-based paramedic. I just, today, got my flight paramedic certification, and uh, I also host my own uh, podcast for critical care paramedicine as well. Congratulations, man, on both. And and today's his birthday, so uh, happy birthday. Why, thank you again. What are you, like 18, 19 now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've only been a medic for uh, about five years, I think. Oh, so five years. Yeah, I've been about a medic uh, for about five years now, but uh, I've been an EMS in some shape or form since uh, I've been like 20. That's awesome. So why don't you go ahead and, go ahead and plug the podcast? Well, how can people find it if they want to take a listen? If they would like to take a listen to my podcast, it's over at uh, critmedic.com, C-R-I-T-medic.com. All right, awesome. I'm going to go ahead and check it out. I've not heard it. But all right, Kelly, let's get this thing underway. Let's do it. Dom, so tell us what you think about pre-hospital point-of-care ultrasound. Is it an expensive boondoggle and a useless toy, or is it the the wave of the future in assessment and and diagnostic tools for for pre-hospital providers? Well, I'm afraid I'm really going to undersell the usefulness of ultrasound. I mean, the way I see ultrasound, it's like that white cloth medical tape, the thing that can be used for everything. You can use it to fix your vehicles. You can use it to make Mm -hmm. cup holders in your ambulance if you don't have them. You can use them to fix your equipment. You can even use it for the illicit purpose of 
you know, applying bandages. <laughs> and that's sort of what ultrasound is, actually. Ultrasound has so many different uses, so much utility, that it's only really limited by provider knowledge and, you know, imagination. Well, you know, most people, uh, when you say ultrasound, they think of, uh, if they're, you know, keeping up with some of the literature, they, they may think of uh, of the FAST exam and and that ultrasound's utility is limited to that, and, and they may not even know of, of that ultrasound's being used in the field. What other uses besides things like a, a FAST exam uh, can you use ultrasound for? Well, the FAST exam is really just the tip of a very big iceberg. For instance, uh, you can do an assessment of the abdomen to see if they have a AAA, whether it's ruptured or not. Even if it's just a routine ultrasound that you're doing on someone who had some sort of mechanism or some other concern, mm-hmm. if you can identify a AAA that's not ruptured, you might have saved potentially that person's life down the road. So AAA is one concern. You can look for thoracic bleeding. You can even check for pneumothorax. How good are EMS providers at checking for pneumothorax? I mean, sure, we could say, well, this side seems a little bit diminished, maybe compared to the other side, but this side has more road noise, and I don't know, it all sounds like a diesel engine at some point, mm-hmm. or a helicopter, or whatever your particular environment happens to be. So we're not even very that good at picking up the pneumothorax. With ultrasound, you have nearly 100% specificity. It's even better than a chest x-ray that they would do at the ER. You can pick up some of the smallest pneumothorax, and whether that becomes a tension or not, that's obviously up to clinical judgment at that point. But you can pick up even the slightest hint of a pneumothorax. Uh, You can check for pericardial fusion or cardiac tamponade because a lot of the PA that we encounter in the field isn't necessarily so much a cardiac rhythm problem. It could actually be a tamponade. And if we have the utility of having ultrasound, we can identify that in the field beyond a measure of a doubt, say, yes, this is a tamponade. And at that point, we may even have medical directors who might be willing and comfortable to allow us to do a pericardial synthesis, which at this point is pretty rare without having a lot of compelling evidence behind it. You can check for abdominal bleeding as well. Everyone's probably familiar with the FAST exam. That's that's just one particular aspect of it. And it's something that the physical exam that we do is not particularly good at. You know, we look for the, the, the rock-hard abdomen and the distension yeah. and the discoloration. By which time it's, it's, it's well into the... Uh into the shock usually well into it and it only occurs in about 10 to 20 percent of the the people who have life-threatening hemorrhages in the abdomen so we can identify this a lot sooner so these patients might be the ones that have some vague complaint of hey i was just in a car accident yeah i have some some tenderness over here but you know that's where the seatbelt is and we may you know minimize and say well it's probably just a seatbelt if these patients are going to sign off or go to a hospital that's, you know, Podunk Community Hospital that doesn't have surgical capability, we could say, hey, on the way to the hospital, why don't we just take a quick look and see what's going on? And we might can, we can even pick up some of the smallest bleeds, as little as 250 mLs in the abdomen. And we can say, hey, you know, maybe signing off or, or going to this uh, non-tertiary uh, facility might not be the best option for those patients. And this doesn't even take a lot of time. Uh, everyone is afraid that, oh, well, you know, you can't spend so much time on scene just mucking around doing an ultrasound. You can actually do an ultrasound, and I have a video of it, of doing an ultrasound in a moving ambulance. And by the time we even got out of the business park from where we started, we were done with our EFAST exam. It was all, all over, and we're going to the closest hospital. 
So I know that Ceballero is chewing his tongue off right now, and, I, and, and I'm, I'm sure I know what he's going to say. But let's, let's let him say it. Go ahead, Chris. Try to shoot a hole in it. You know, I think that there are some good points that you bring in, Dom, and, and you know, certainly when you were talking about the um, – whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, hold, hold on. Who are you, and what have you done with Chris Evalero? He's here, man. He's here. But you know, one of the things that you know, one of the things that I think that I want to bring up is, you know, you talk about the time, and I don't know. And I've been a paramedic now. I guess this is my thirty-first year. And one of the things that is interesting to me is. What information does this do for me? How am I going to treat the patient differently? How am I now going to be able to say, okay, there's blood in the abdomen, which I thought there may have been blood in the abdomen, secondary to the mechanism of injury, but now I know for sure, um, what am I going to do? How is it going to help this patient? I think my management, I think my treatment, I think my knowledge, and keeping them as stable as possible is going to allow me to get them to the hospital if that's what was in their history, is that, that they were supposed to get to the hospital. But otherwise, for me to take this this piece of equipment out of the cabinet and use it to make the determination that there's blood in the abdomen, I think that is steps that I don't need to take. Secondly, you know, you talk about the pneumothorax, and I did find it interesting where you said that you could even pick up those small pneumothoraxes um, because, the, you know, depending on, the, depending on the puncture, depending on the wound, they certainly do get more extreme. And then uh, certainly uh, when it becomes a tension pneumothorax, you know, at later signs, you're going to start to see a real shift and change. But one of the things that I can say is in, in my years of being a paramedic, I never missed a pneumothorax. I mean, I understood what I needed to look for. My stethoscope worked like it was supposed to work. I was able to decompress the chest when I needed to decompress the chest. So again, as I'm now thinking about my treatment plans of, as I'm going forward, and, and, and Dom, I may, I may be this old paramedic, you know, and as I tell this story, as I listen to myself say it, I'm the guy that I would have pointed my finger at, you know, 20 years ago to say, you just need to shut up and, and get back in an ambulance. But, you know, the point that I want to make is that I've never had a problem with a pneumothorax. I never had a problem figuring out that there was blood in the abdomen, um, if it was going to be rigid, if it was going to be hard, if there was going to be whatever it was. But now, what is this going to do for me that is going to change my treatment and management plans of these patients? Let me let me jump in real quick, and, and Dom will, will give a far more intelligent answer. But uh, so let me let me address the luddite in the room. Um, Nancy pointed this out to me when we were talking about it the other day. You know, back in the day. The fire service really resisted using those newfangled motor vehicles to power their uh, their uh, apparatus around um, because you know everyone knew that they were um, uh, prone to breaking down and nowhere near as reliable as a horse. Uh, and you don't see any horse-drawn uh, uh, fire engines anymore. So I, I think uh, history is probably going to judge you uh, judge uh, this far differently than you do. But then. You know, we'll we'll let Dom take it from here. I mean, I think it was cute how you had to bring the horses in it, man. I think it was real cute. <laughs> but again, it still doesn't. Whether you talk about um, a horse-drawn carriage, whether you talk about a fire engine that goes under its own power, depending on the city it's in, what is it going to do to change my treatment? Uh, what yeah, is it all, do? You, all you kids with your transistor radios and your ultrasounds and your Davy Crockett hats. In my day, all we had was eyeballs and ears and maybe a Sprague stethoscope. And by God, we were grateful. Remote controls? <laughs> Who had a remote control? That's that's how you sound, Chris. I hate to uh, to answer a question with another question, but barring those inferior MIs, how does 12-lead capability change your care? Oy. Ooh. <laughs> 
that's good. Answer that one, Chris. How does, well, it, it really it doesn't because now the only thing that it does for me is going to confirm. But I've tr- I've treated a lot of MIs with according to my protocol, and I didn't treat the monitor. So because I was able to look at it and say, yeah, I have an MI, it didn't change how I treated the patient at all. Okay. Well, well, let me ask you this, Chris. Would you agree that acquisition of a pre-hospital 12-lead EKG speeds up definitive care in the emergency department as a general practice? No. I'm going to say no. You don't think so? No. And let me tell you why. Because I've worked in a lot of – yeah, I mean, you want to be snub about it. I'm going to be snub about it. I worked in a lot of systems where I went ahead and had a 12-week EKG that Mm -hmm. showed inferior lateral MI. And I called the the hospital. I said, activate the cath team. And when I showed up, the cath team wasn't activated. Or they took the patient to a room, and they did another 12-week EKG. So does it speed up the fact that they're going to get into definitive care quicker? The answer is no. Well, there are, it, now, it did in your case, but there's, there's... There are some, you're right, there are some systems that are prideful about their door-to-balloon time. And there are some systems in the United States that are having EMS to balloon time, and they're tracking those numbers. But does it make a difference to definitive care? i got to tell you, maybe. How about that for an answer? So, well, would you... Is it not plausible then that a pre-hospital ultrasound can can shorten the time to definitive care just like a, uh, a, a pre-hospital 12-lead does in, in every system but yours? <laughs> I won't say every system but yours. I'm being mean. But, you know, the, there's a, a good bit of data out there that shows that it does uh, speed up the door-to-balloon time and shorten it uh, pretty significantly, uh, provided the hospital does its part. So presuming that the hospital does its part with a pre-hospital ultrasound, why is it why is it uh, so hard to believe that it wouldn't speed up time to surgical intervention? What do you think, Dom? Well, I think that um, the usefulness of the ultrasound is beyond just our knowledge of, hey, this patient has this kind of hemorrhage or this kind of condition going on. I think that that's all things that we can do now with ultrasound. But the future of EMS care is dependent upon our adoption of pre-hospital ultrasound. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, I mentioned before the uh, pericardial uh, effusion or cardiac tamponade. How many places have protocol to stick a needle right in the uh, pericardium and aspirate that? Not many places because without having solid documented evidence of that, it's a high-risk procedure. And without ultrasound guidance, there's a good chance that some EMS provider somewhere is going to find a way to screw it up. So that's one thing that's going to change. The other thing is pain management, which for me is a, a huge component of it. Think about uh, all the patients. I've, you've taken the pharmatic course. In fact, I think you believe, I believe you teach it, Kelly. Uh, how many well, patients, I did once upon a time, but no longer. Uh, how many patients have you encountered that have had some sort of uh, entrapment or have their arm in some sort of auger? Mm-hmm. And in order to manage their pain you may have to apply them with relatively high doses of opiates uh, mm-hmm. to the point where it impairs their either their level of consciousness or potentially impacts their hemodynamics on top of it. I've, I've snowed a person or two in the, back in the day. Well, hell, not just back in the day, uh, fairly recently, but uh, um, for good reason. Um, so, so how does ultrasound play into that? Let's say we have that, or let's say we have a grandma who fell and broke her hip. Instead of hitting them with you know, milligrams upon milligrams of systemic opiates, we could go with a precision ultrasound-guided nerve block, which is actually not really that challenging to do. We could make the entire leg go numb, and that's all you have to do. You don't have to give systemic doses of opiates. 
And now grandma feels nothing in her leg, no pain whatsoever, no sensation, so that you don't have to do high-dose opiates and, you know, use ketamine, which is a fantastic drug, by the way, but mm-hmm. still has the you know, potential to impact their, uh, their mental status and everything like that. You can have someone being perfectly conscious just without the pain or sensation. That's another way that ultrasound is going to revolutionize their care. It can revolutionize our care by allowing us to do ultrasound-guided IVs. I mean, I'm pretty good at doing an IV, but there are veins that are deeper than we can typically palpate, a little bit more than a centimeter underneath the surface of the skin and adipose tissue that are bigger, wider, that we can sink in a larger diameter uh, angio into them that we couldn't feel otherwise, but with ultrasound guidance, we could put in the large bore IV. Hmm. That is something that uh, I didn't know. Um, uh, we, we missed that in our discussion last week, so learned something new, uh, yet again. Well, we kind of, we kind of hit on the, in, the intravenous and, you mm-hmm. know, you could buy those $99 vein lights and they're going to help just as well. But I did find, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you were incorrigible, <laughs> but I, no, but I did find the, uh, the nerve block very, yeah, very that's interesting. What I was talking about, yeah. the nerve block. Oh, is that what you were saying? Yeah. I thought you were talking about the IV. Yeah. And so let me ask you this, Dom. So you, you did pique my interest on this other topic where you talked about pericardial santesis. Um, is that something you think could be managed and done with an ultrasound in the field to now take the pressure off the heart? I don't see a reason why that uh, paramedics couldn't be trained in performing this procedure. It's not done currently because we don't have a lot of good evidence to support that they have a pericardial fusion or a cardiac tamponade. But with an ultrasound, it's a quick look, and it's immediately apparent that you have a cardiac tamponade just based on the initial impression that you see on the ultrasound. Well, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Well, and you know, there's uh, and when we're we're doing an ultrasound of the heart, we can do other things with it, uh, like determining wall movement in that in that uh, presumed asystole, uh, where you know the electrical axis may just be horizontal, and and you you looks like asystole, but the ultrasound shows wall movement. Uh, that makes a difference in our cardiac arrest resuscitation. Uh, while we're so, while we're talking about the heart, um, yeah. Let's, uh, let's line them up side by side, 12 lead and ultrasound for, let's say, uh, pulmonary embolism. How would you obtain clinical information to say that there is a pulmonary embolism, let's say, with a 12 lead? Well, that's going to be a tough one. I mean, you've got to yeah. be really tight in your, you know, in your knowledge, but you, you, you're, you're, you're going to find it until it's late, until it's too yeah. late. And even then, it's, it's usually by inference. It's, it's not something right. that's a definitive uh, findings. So. Many people are taught the S1, Q3, T3, right. which, which is not all that accurate in some cases. Exactly. I mean, the most common EKG finding in a pulmonary embolism is tachycardia. Whereas if you do ultrasound, if you look at the heart, you can see a distension of the right ventricle with a pulmonary embolism. And then you know you've got a PE that you're dealing with. The right ventricle is supposed to be smaller and more triangular than the left. And if it's distended, you know that there's some back pressure coming from the lungs, which has got to be a PE. Well, that's interesting. That is. I don't know, man. I think you're doing it. I think you're starting to sway me. I think that yeah. seesaw is starting to go to the middle. Well, and there's the what we talked about last week. We we talked about uh, uh, using ultrasound to help differentiate between CHF and COPD exacerbation. And you know, our yeah, but come on, are, are, come but, on, Kelly. No, really, uh, how often are our treatments different in that regard? You know, are you going to be fogging? Uh, when's the last time you missed? Sedation? When's the last time you missed pulmonary edema? Well, it's not so much pulmonary. I, anyone can. Well, I won't say anyone, but most people who are can you know uh, see lightning and hear thunder can can spot flash pulmonary edema and and 
and that sort of thing, you've got a profoundly hypertensive patient and they're, they sound like a coffee percolator with cool, clammy skin, what's well, a no-brainer? But it's the ones who are a little bit ambiguous and they have the history of both. They have a history of CHF, they have a history of COPD, they're wheezing a little bit. You know, all that is asthma does not wheeze, and all that wheezes is not asthma. How do you know it's not cardiac asthma and, and the early stages of, uh, of pulmonary edema that you're listening to and, and you're hearing reactive bronchospasm? Um, I was, was actually very uh, um, interested in, in reading about how you can use ultrasound to help differentiate between the two. Um, because sometimes, you know, with, with some of our patients or uh, with a lot of our patients, it's, it's kind of equivocal. It's you're operating on hunches. You know, so I got to tell you, man, I mean, certainly there is a lot to think about. There's so much to talk about. Dom, I, I appreciate you coming on the show and kind of setting me straight and making me see the light. There is one thing that I think that we can do with this ultrasound, though. I think we could finally determine the sex of Kelly Grayson's baby. What about that? <laughs> well, it might be a very, uh, a very I've been uh, carrying it long planning. enough. It's it's well past term. So, That's right, uh, man. Well, Tom, we probably like Kelly do the closing. So let's get us up on out of here. So, Dom, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks for educating us about uh, ultrasound. And we'd like to know what our listeners think. Do you think that ultrasound is a expensive toy with no real clinical application or is it the next big thing in in ems care and diagnostics let us know at the show at ems1.com don't forget to rate us on itunes and for myself and my co-host chris Sevalero, thank to dom wallenzak for appearing on the show today thanks for tuning in to inside ems catch you guys next week <laughs>